The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is the guy who's the culprit that teepeed Stanley Cup champion coach Joel Quinville's house, my co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico. Welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, it's more of our sci-fi summer as we continue reviewing episodes of Warehouse 13, Falling Skies, and Continuum, as well as an Airwaves rundown section featuring our thoughts on The Goodwin Games, Defiance, Burn Notice, Under the Dome, and Crossing Lines. And also on this episode, we will be celebrating the Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup victory because we are huge Hawks fans on this podcast. Absolutely. And also, guys expected, we have our News with Nico section. Elementary adds Reese Ifans as Holmes' spoiler. If you don't want to know, click to the next news article. Yes. When Elementary goes across the pond for its season two premiere, we'll meet at least one member of Holmes' estranged family, Welsh actor Risa Fons, known to the Amazing Spider-Man fans as Dr. Kurt Connors, a.k.a. the Lizard, has taken on the recurring role of Sherlock's sibling, Mycroft. The CBS drama's London set episode will be filmed on location and finds Sherlock revisiting an old case in England. While there, he and Jones stay with his older brother at 221B Baker Street, despite the siblings' terrible falling out years earlier. During this stay, Sherlock and Mycroft will deal with the drift between them. Elementary returns Thursday, September 26th at 10 9 Central. That's a big grab for the show. It is. Risa Fons is awesome. I've, I've loved yeah. him in almost everything I've ever seen seen him in including a really out there movie called danny deck chair which is awesome okay just if if you haven't seen it go and see it it's about this guy who's not happy with his life and he puts helium balloons on a deck chair and then he's just gonna go up and see the fireworks but unfortunately he gets swept away and then like goes miles and miles away and it's just like an amazing journey and then he kind of like tries to live a new life where he lands it's it's really an interesting story so kind of like a live action up yeah yeah but it was before up yeah yeah exactly it, it's really a cool story got it other big uh, tv news <laughs> In other casting news, Game of Thrones casts Oberon the Red Viper. Season 3 may have only just ended, but Game of Thrones is already gearing up for Season 4, and the show's producers have now cast the highly anticipated role of Prince Oberon the Red Viper. EntertainmentWeekly.com reports that the character will be portrayed by Chilean actor Pedro Pascal, who has previously appeared on CBS's The Good Wife, ABC's Red Widow, and most recently, USA's Graceland. The site also provides a spoiler-free description of the character for those who haven't read the book. Oberon is a brash, charming, cunning prince of Dorne, part of the Seven Kingdoms of Westeros. His sister, Aaliyah, was brutally murdered by the Lannister's knight Gregor the Mountain Clegney when the Mad King Ares was overthrown by Robert Baratheon and the Lannisters. In Season 4, Oberon comes to King's Landing with revenge on his mind. 
This should make for a great casting and obviously great character story development for season four. It's going to be good. So this guy has something in common with me, as in the fact that I <laughs> hate Tywin Lannister. He hates the Lannisters and absolutely hates the mountain. So good story art coming from that. That Yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how that goes. Can I just hope the guy doesn't hate Tyrion because Tyrion's cool? So that's just me. <laughs> right. And even more casting news, Downton Abbey exclusive Paul Giamatti that's joined awesome. season four cast as Korra's, once again, spoiler, if you don't yeah. want to know, go to the next news article. Downton Abbey is bracing for another American invasion. TV Line has learned exclusively that Paul Giamatti is joining the masterpiece PBS Phenom's season four cast as Harold Levinson the maverick playboy brother of Cora and uncle to Mary and Edith. Giamatti, who earned an Emmy and Golden Globe for his title role in HBO's miniseries John Adams, is set to appear in the season four finale alongside returning guest star Shirley MacLaine as Cora and Harold's mother, Martha. Executive producer and Carnival Films managing director Gareth Name describes Harold as free-spirited and promises that both Giamatti and MacLaine will upset the Grantham's apple cart in the finale. That's another big grab for a big show. Yeah, huge. I love Paul Giamatti. Well, it's awesome that he's doing this. I think that's great that he's taking time out of schedule to do something like this. It's a really cool experience and opportunity for him and the fans as well. Absolutely. Because I love him and everything I've seen him in as well. Falling Skies Comic-Con panel announced. Falling Skies is returning to Comic-Con. TNT have announced a panel for the hit sci-fi series will take place on Friday, July 19th. The Falling Skies panel will feature series stars Noah Wiley, Moon Bloodgood, Will Patton, Drew Roy, Connor Jessup, Colin Cunningham, Sarah Carter, and Doug Jones, along with executive producers Remia Abukun and Greg Beeman. Will Wheaton, who hosts the Falling Skies post-show video discussion each week, Second Watch, will moderate the panel. While the exact time and room for the panel is not yet revealed, TNT notes an autograph signing will follow at the Dark Horse booth. This is definitely on my list of panels I want to see at Comic-Con. But the only thing is, because this show will be airing at the same time, does does this have the risk of giving away some big spoilers, this panel? I think we're going to be closing in on the end of the season. And no, they, they're pretty good about not spoiling anything. They'll talk about anything that has aired, of course. But I think it's more of like just like what it's like to be on set and things like that. You know, you know yeah. how the panels always go. And people ask questions. And if they can't talk about it, they usually deflect and talk about something else that's really cool. Or tell a joke. Yeah, exactly. Yes. In more Comic-Con news, the X-Files 20th anniversary reunion panel set for Comic-Con. It's hard to believe, but the X-Files premiered 20 years ago this September. As it turns out, to celebrate the show reaching this milestone, there will be a big reunion panel next month at San Diego Comic-Con. SDCCblog.com gave us the heads up about the X-Files reunion, noting that the latest issue of TV Guide magazine has an ad for the panel, which will take place on Thursday, July 18th, and will feature series creator Chris Carter and writer-producers David Amon, Vince Gilligan, Howard Gordon, Darren Morgan, Glenn Morgan, John Shaban, and Jim Wong. The ad also lists, quote, more guests to come, which will have us all wondering, will David Decovey and Gillian Anderson take part in the panel? 
Keep your fingers crossed. Now, an update in the last couple hours, Jillian Anderson's official website says she will indeed be part of the panel. So now we're just hoping Duchovny decides to come as well. Awesome. And I hope this maybe begins buzz for more X-Files content. There is already more X-Files content that Michael is actually reviewing on, on our website in the comic book form. And that is awesome. Yep, it's a season 10 comic book Yep, that's going to tie up loose ends and takes place after that movie that we kind of want to neglect ever happened, but, (laughs) you know. Uh, It wasn't that bad. (laughs) It was okay. (laughs) I want the invasion movie, darn it. Yeah. Even though it's past 2012, whoops. AMC to host the Walking Dead preview weekend. Make this 4th of July weekend a zombie fest to remember. Beginning Thursday, July 4th at 1 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, AMC will be hosting the Walking Dead Season 4 Preview Weekend, a marathon event hosted by filmmaker and comic book men executive producer Kevin Smith from the Atlanta-based set where the cast are currently shooting. During the marathon, Smith will speak with the cast and crew, sharing behind-the-scenes footage from the highly anticipated fourth season. The first season of The Walking Dead will air twice on July 4th, featuring marathons of both the original and special black and white editions. This will be followed by season two on Friday and season three on both Saturday and Sunday. Each day of this four-day event begins at 1 p.m. Side note, the black and white editions only apply to season one on July 4th because they haven't given season two or season three the black and white treatment yet. As for The Walking Dead season four, new episodes will begin airing in October. Okay, that black and white format, that's like the true way to watch walking dead because it's like reading the comic (laughs) exactly exactly yeah psych the musical this day just keeps getting better (laughs) polish up your dancing shoes psychos because you're invited to the first ever midnight screening of psych the musical in san diego california on july 17th find out how to register for tickets and what other tricks we have up our sleeves on the official website first come first serve it'll be an unforgettable evening of song dance and psycho solidarity featuring exclusive giveaways complimentary concessions cast appearances and plenty of pineapple infused fun so don't be a silly goose reserve your free ticket to the screening now and you can do so at the link in the acc feed you got your tickets nico i'm signed up for it nice yep i'm interested to see that episode how that's gonna work i think it's gonna be awesome yeah i think so it's gonna be probably a lot of fun and uh claudia it's filled with psych fans to watch indeed and in more psych news Sykes' final season episode order has been increased. Awesome! Sykes' likely final season is growing. USA Network has increased the show's season 8 order from 8 episodes to 10. The move comes two months after USA commissioned five additional season 8 scripts, only two of which will now be produced. Viewers, meanwhile, will get to choose the storyline of one of the two bonus episodes from three options at usanetwork.com. Voting closes on July 12th, and the winning plot will be announced the following week at comic-con so go to the link in our acc feed to vote for one of the three stories i like the food truck one best but vote for the one that sounds best to you because honestly all three seem like they could be awesome food truck yes and that's the news with nico for this week all right that's great stuff a lot to be excited about for comic-con and big tv shows that have a huge fan following so very exciting stuff out there and we will be giving you more comic-con news as it breaks at our various ata resources including facebook twitter google plus and of course the regular ata podcast episodes with news with nico so for everything comic-con check out across the airwaves at across the airwaves.com so with that nico are you ready to move on to talking about sci-fi's powerful monday with the show that had a great episode, Warehouse 13, with the episode entitled Lost and Found. 
Pete and Micah are hot on the historical trail of pirate roaring Dan Seavey, who engineered the theft of artifacts from Warehouse 12. This is a great episode of Warehouse 13, because it completely focused on advancing the overarching storyline with pretty much no filler. It presented the acquisition of the weekly artifact because more of a treasure hunt, which was a nice change of pace from the usual case-solving scenario. I also liked how the main team of this episode was made up of Pete, Micah, and Artie, since it provided a nice dose of nostalgia back to the early days of this show, while playing nicely into figuring out just whose side Charlotte Dupree was on, until she ultimately settled with the warehouse team, because they were willing to save her life, like the warehouse agent she dealt with in the past. So, Nico, what was your thoughts on going back to the classic Pete, Micah, and Artie team for the first two seasons? Charlotte's constant double-crossing got the cool ghost pirate that wasn't very fond of noise. Yeah, Dan, this episode did have a sort of retrospective or nostalgic feel to it, with Pete and Micah teaming up with Artie, much like we got very early in the series. This worked very well also with teaming up with Charlotte's character, despite knowing that she would ultimately double-cross their double-cross. I actually liked how this all worked out and how she ended up saving the day because despite everything she'd done to them, when push came to shove, the warehouse team still tried to save her life. I like that in the end, she was will actually probably end up being an ally to the warehouse, despite our thinking that she was originally going to be the big bad. Now, as for the smoke yes. monster, I sort of felt like this was a combination of the smoke monster from Lost and the one from the Mummy franchise. Regardless, the smoky ghost or monster thing was a big special effects improvement over the cheapo lava from a few weeks ago. It was actually kind of cool looking. So, Dan, I was very impressed by the visual effects this week. Top notch. They really went all out with this episode. They did a very nice job. It really was a good episode. And, you know, the Pete and Micah already... It's always good. Mm -hmm. It's always rock solid. So, really, they couldn't go wrong there at all. But as for the Claudia and Steve story, it kind of ran on the borderline of filler. And then somewhat got annoying because we were first exposed to Nick, a.k.a. Charlotte's son's snotty British accent. It had to deal with the kid, kind of trying to turn Claudia and Steve against each other. Because it gave me flashbacks of watching Connor from Angel, who is probably one of the most annoying television characters of all time in my book. However, before the writers got too carried away with the he said, she said business between Claudia and Steve, things picked up a bit because Nick was able to whammy them with an artifact that made Claudia think Marcus, one of the big bats from season three, could come back from the dead. So, Nico, what did you think of this plotline? Were you annoyed with it at first like I was? Because they got into the story once Claudia got to the warehouse where the action took place? Yeah, Dan, I was not a fan of the Nick story arc at all until the very end. I love your reference to the worst character in the Buffy universe, Connor, the bane of season four of Angel. I like that. I'm not sure he's risen to that level yet, but I loved the reference. Absolutely loved it. I liked the artifact that actually whammied Steve and Claudia from a conceptual standpoint, and actually the execution was fairly good as well. Having Claudia see Marcus was brilliant. This worked excellently to forward the story and was just a cool idea for an artifact, in my opinion. So, not a real fan of Nick in this episode until the very end, but I'll discuss more of, of what I liked in a moment, but I don't want to step on your toes. Right, and well, and the thing with the Nick character, the problem is, though, it's more we like where his arc is going right. than the performance of the character so it could get a little scary i don't know i'm glad that they had the steve and claudia thing get worked out quick yeah i think he's gonna be a lot better now that he doesn't have to be duplicitous and he can be just 
that character we Nick saw at Van the very Dyke. end. Yes. Well, I mean, again, he was annoying this episode, but I think he does have the potential to become a lot better now that he has a great actor to play off of. As in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer alum, Anthony Stewart Head, who actually played a very good character, is, I guess, going to be the big bad of this season now. Not Charlotte, which is a yeah. good move. And I'm going to totally butcher his name. Was it Periclesius? I think so. Okay. So, yes, the character's name is Periclesius. And I guess... The guy has a bone to pick with the warehouse. Because the first thing he does after being freed from the brown sector is bronze Claudia, setting up uh, next episode to be a race for the other warehouse agents to save her life. In my opinion, I'm glad to see someone like Anthony Stewart have on warehouse because he's a great actor. But this issue with Claudia being bronzed can only last an episode because there's no way this show could hold its own without such a huge fan favorite character. But it was a great way to challenge Artie, got really get under his skin, got his probably going to be a big thing could helping already redeem himself after what happened in the mid-season finale but uh nico i gotta ask you now are you excited to see anthony stewart head pop up as the big bad for this season kind uh what did you think about the twist with claudia being bronze do you think it will hurt this show if this turns out to be a long-term thing absolutely loved seeing giles on this show yes also his appearance elevated the nick character as we as we mentioned a moment ago beyond the perpetual teenage annoying character he was to something more interesting as he's gone completely off script and are now going on their own plan to exact some revenge upon the warehouse this is actually a lot better story than what we were getting earlier for this character or what we thought we were going to get yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think bronzing Claudia gives us a two-pronged problem to tackle in the coming episodes. While Steve and Artie work to fix the bronzer and save Claudia, Micah, Pete, and now probably Charlotte must track down Nick and Paracelsus or Pericles or whatever, however you say his name, yeah. and stop whatever their new plan happens to be. I imagine that Claudia will be saved by the end of the next episode yeah, that's good. due to Artie and Steve and maybe even Abigail's ingenuity and problem-solving skills to save her and fix the bronzer. But the other plotline will continue until the finale and maybe even into next season, or at least the effects of whatever they unleash will yeah. be felt into next season. Also, real Real quick, there was a notable absence of Abigail in this episode after yeah. we had talked about how great she was being incorporated into the episodes and into the plot lines, and then she was just auspiciously absent in this episode. I just don't think they knew how to fit her in. I think you're right, and I think it's going to be better in the next episode when they are all rushing to save Claudia and she can jump in and help. I think that will bring her into the story. Well, and there was some big fish to fry with Micah and Pete. Yeah. And that was, I mean, that was a big focus of this episode. Absolutely. So we needed that and it just, it didn't work for Abigail to be there for the nostalgia they needed and what they were going for with that. But I, I do think she'll have a scene with Micah about that. And on that note, with being brought back to the early days of being a warehouse agent by teaming up with Pete and Artie, kind of profound effect on Micah regarding the knowledge that she has cancer, which was the big shocker at the end of last week's episode. And I thought it was very creative how the writers expressed Micah's struggle with telling Pete about the cancer through us visually seeing the different variations of Pete's reaction to the news played inside of Micah's head. And it was a good way to express what Micah was going through in a way that kind of showed and just didn't tell us good, like boring, long amounts of dialogue. So that was good. But I was also impressed with how the writers connected Micah's fight against cancer to the overarching story by Charlotte's mission to cure her son of immortality being what ultimately gets Micah to share her diagnosis with Pete. 
On that note, I'm making the crackpot theory that Micah is going to try and find a way to exchange her mortality with Charlotte somehow. Again, I don't know how all the logistics are going to work on that, but that's what I'm thinking. Or maybe she's going to take it from Nick or Perclesius to cure her cancer. Or maybe it's going to be Pete who tries to make this a possibility in order to kind of kick his love story with Micah that we want to see in the high gear. However, I think Micah will turn down this opportunity because it will probably put the warehouse or the safety of the world at risk. But I could see another immortal, because it misses Frederick, possibly helping Micah out. Because we've got a few hints that she seems to be wearing out, based by that strand of gray hair that appeared in her brown hair. Again, I could be wrong about all of this stuff, but I've got to give the writers kudos for tying this overarching story into a solid morality dilemma for Micah and the Warehouse family that I'm really intrigued to see how it's going to all play out. So Nico, did the way they connected the overarching story with Charlotte wanting to lose her immortality to Micah having cancer pique your interest? Okay, what's your thoughts on my crackpot theories? Yeah, Dan, it did actually, and it heightened it up and made me really focus in on that aspect in the last couple minutes. Which but I think, I think it's rock solid. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we discussed last week that I'm of the opinion that the cancer will not have been caused by an artifact or anything related right. to the warehouse. And I sort of hope that the cure will likewise steer clear of using any artifact or special warehouse cure, although I could very easily see it going that route. I think it would be much more interesting and impactful if she and Pete have to struggle through this together with the chemo, surgeries, radiations, sickness and all that but this is a supernatural show so it is unlikely that it'll go that route and there will probably be some sort of artifact or supernatural or something effect that ultimately saves her if we're going to go the route where somehow Micah is cured by either becoming immortal or taking on the immortal powers of for a time, which is actually the way I think her, her cancer will be cured, then I hope Pete tells her that he won't let her do it alone and that she can only be immortal if he's there by her side. That way we get both the resolution of Micah's cancer and the forward progression of the love story we've, we've been clamoring for. But I do think that in order to break the curse of immortality of Nick, Charlotte, and the Count James Marsters, that Micah and Pete will have to use the Philosopher's Stone and it will transfer the immortality onto them, but that it will ultimately not last or they will be able to neutralize the stone and break its immortality effect, but not until Micah's cancer has been cured incidentally by it. Just my crackpot theory and sort of my response to your crackpot <laughs> theories as well. I do like your idea about possibly it being Mrs. Frederick that helps out. I like that, but I think Mrs. Frederick's wearing out has more to do with Claudia becoming the okay. next, you know. So I think they're going to keep those two stories separate, although I could see a little bit of a tie-in or yeah. – once Pete and Micah become immortal and they have to think about whether or not they want to give that up, Mrs. Frederick will remind them of all the things she's gone through being immortal or right. semi-immortal, and they'll maybe consider. I can also see the H.G. Wells character playing a part in that as well. If they bring Absolutely. her back. Absolutely. Um, it's going to depend on her commitments to defiance Yes, Jimmy Murray, but I could see that happening as well. Yep. I think we're going to see the chemo and all that stuff. I think there's going to be the temptation for the immortality there. Right. Okay, so I think they're going to try to do it, you know, the real way. And then, you know, there's going to be a temptation to do this. Because they may or may not go for it. My big question is, Mrs. Frederick's deal is different than Charlotte and Nick and the Count's situation, right? Yeah, it's tied to the warehouse, not okay. to the Philosopher's Stone. Okay. So the Philosopher's Stone is what's making them immortal, right? Is that clear? Something that was done with the Philosopher's Stone, yes. Okay. If you go back to the Harry Potter idea... 
Yes. The Philosopher's Stone, or they called it something else in the American version. Sorcerer's Stone. Sorcerer's Stone. Thank you. It made the one friend of Dumbledore's, he was immortal. Right. And as long as he continued to to be able to make the elixir with it, he could stay immortal. Okay. But in the end, they had to destroy it so that Voldemort couldn't become immortal. Right. You know, you, you guys yes. all have read that. If you haven't, I just spoiled nothing from the first movie. Yeah. But anyway. I was going to yeah. say, I loved how Pete referenced it as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> from Harry Potter? Yes. Yeah, that was great. I do think that whatever they did, it was a one-shot one deal as opposed to what they did in, in Harry Potter where he had to continually take the serum every couple years. So I do think that whatever they do, they're going to neutralize the stone, but it's not going to just work. They have to actually transfer it off of those people and then be able to neutralize it when it's on new people or something like that. I don't know how it's going to work. I'm not that smart, but <laughs> I do have a couple crackpot theories. Well, and then there's also the possibility that whatever they do to cure Micah opens the door for the next season. Yep. Exactly. that plot line so we'll see i don't know i don't think there's many more episodes left on warehouse season four i guess because I think defiance there's has about two left. four okay so there's four because yeah because defiance started out the week beforehand so that one okay. makes sense that one lined up right so yeah you're probably right there's four yeah i'm i'm gonna check real quick and see if i can find it because defiance has two left on the season okay so there's only probably two of warehouse okay because the... defiance started the week before warehouse did yeah so the 19th episode next week and the 20th it looks like wraps up the season okay so this may be a situation where this may spill into season five and this could be the final arc i absolutely think it's going to because they just have rushed it at the end yeah and so i think yeah and interesting enough warehouse 13 season four is going to be available on that july 19th to purchase on dvd okay yeah fast huh that is quick yes so there's that as well. But with that, are you ready to move on to the other wild and crazy sci-fi show that we talk about? Absolutely. All right. Well, let's see if some of your crackpot theories you had, which were great, Nico, were correct. And of course, Michael will be joining us on this as well, because we talk about the Falling Skies episode, Search and Recover. A mission takes a nightmarish course, forcing Tom and Pope to depend on one another for survival. Elsewhere, Weaver and crew desperately try to find two missing second mass members, and Marina rebels against Tom's authority. All right, everybody, so we're going to start things out with our Falling Skies section with me saying I felt like this episode was more of what we're used to with Falling Skies or what the audience is expecting, because I thought it really focused on what makes the show good, which is the triumph of the human spirit over just kind of a horrible situation. As Nico first described Falling Skies, all the bads happened, so the only way you can go now is up. And I think this episode of Falling Skies continued with that in a great way. Got really kind of straight away. It was still there, but it wasn't as wacky with the sci-fi stuff. With Hal going evil and Anne's alien baby and all that stuff. I know some people were really scratching their heads about the show with that last week, but I thought it was handled better here. And I think the Hal thing is going to get resolved rather quickly soon, at least in my opinion. Yeah, it sounds like that's going to be the next episode. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, as we saw in the preview... He goes crazy next week. Yes. <laughs> and so I, I do think we will finally get that wrapped up. Now, it might not be back to him being out in the field, but at least there'll be the conflict next week and he'll get 
thrown in jail or whatever, and then they'll have to figure out how to fix him or how to remove that probe or what they're going to do with him. But at least we're going to get some forward progress on that. Because I think right now, it was really annoying the last two weeks. Last week for sure, but this week with him just being completely off. And yeah. even Maggie mentioning that in this episode, he's just she was just like, you've just been weird all day. And for us watching it, it's like, yeah, he's been weird for the last couple episodes. Well, I felt the brothers were picking up on it as well. Yeah, oh, a yeah. little bit. Yeah. More so Ben, I think, than that. But yeah. But still not enough to like call him out like Maggie did. Right. right. And, and that might be just because they're his brother. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't want to call out your family kind of thing. You know, that's that's uh, that's hard to comprehend. I think it's going to be something that is going to catch Tom completely off guard as well. Yeah. When that goes down next week. But I think next week we are going to get some big stuff out of Ben. I think it's really going to be a Ben-centered episode. Okay. Uh, because I think it's a reversal of kind of what down last season because Ben was kind of tempted by Karen. Mm-hmm. in that episode. So I think it's a good reversal. Can I really like the relationship being formed between Ben and Matt? Yes. That was some really great stuff on this episode and talking about their mom's death and getting over with it and dealing with that and you know, Matt really didn't have anyone to turn to at this point. Cause I really liked how Ben was there to kind of be his support. And a lot goes to Weaver too. Weaver mm-hmm. played a great role in keeping Ben I mean keeping Matt together and focused and keep going and I thought that was great stuff too and again you know I, I wish Weaver could be my own personal inspirational come speaker you know <laughs> get me fired up in the morning because he's just awesome with his speeches but yeah it's good stuff yeah I really liked Ben in this episode because it did seem like he's starting to finally maybe be more like a human than he was last season and it's really coming through this season that he's not only does he still have the abilities of having the spikes, but he's sort of getting back to who he was before. And so like this talk with Matt about their mother and the last thing that they saw, you know, the last time they saw her before they saw her when she was dead, that was really kind of good in the sense that it gave us this feel that finally Ben is starting to feel like he's a human again and not just like this superhuman or something. So I, I liked that aspect of that scene as well. I was just say, I was just going to agree with him. Man, okay. That was basically it. Summed it up for me, Nico. <laughs> and another great interaction between characters, I thought, was the scene with Tom and Pope at night when they were trying to lay low from the skitters and everything that was after them, where Pope kind of revealed what sent him to prison. Yeah. And it was a very different story than I think any of us thought it would be. As mm-hmm. essentially, I mean, he was trying to be a good dad, but he let his anger get the best of him. And that didn't go so well. And being sent to prison is what made him what he's into. Not essentially the killing of the guy, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea that it was not something wholly malicious that Pope did. You can see the good in him. And in the past, we've seen this sort of good and evil battle within him because he has a tendency to lose his temper and get hot headed and do things that are impulsive and maybe even bad. You know, when he left, he stole the motorbike and left Tom and the rest of the crew behind and then went and killed the skitters, you know, just because that was what he had to do, you know? And so like, we've seen him do good things. We've seen him do bad things. We've seen a softer side of him, his cooking and caring for Matt and things like that. And the way he treats his crew, the berserkers under his command. Yeah, exactly. He's, he is not 
an all bad or an all good character. He's a very gray character and that is great. And now we understand that even more that what we thought was his bad side was actually just a tragic mistake. And that's awesome. Yeah. When we definitely saw the parental instinct with him and Matt this season, and I guess at the end of last season, I think, which really goes to show that his backstory makes complete sense. I mean, if if we hadn't been told it in this episode, you could have assumed that he had kids and really, you know, was that good dad, but would lose his temper. Yeah. And you can, just by the way, he treats Matt. Yeah, I agree with that as well. But again... What I guess didn't make sense, or it just didn't feel right to me, was, you know, Pope pulled that joke with the snake. And Tom just kind of, like, flipped out. It kind of began this whole, like, duking it out, fight to the death with him. And I just, I don't know, it just didn't seem like Tom to me. I just think he would be smarter than that, because it attracted the skitters. And I, I just don't know why he would risk himself in that way. Especially when he has, you know, kids to get back to, got his family and stuff. I don't know, was this off to you guys, or what was going on there? Yeah, it was a little off. It didn't it didn't feel like Tom to me, either. I, I think part of that is the trauma of, you know, being in a plane crash. Being right there in front of the plane when it crashes. So I'd assume he went a little crazy, and I mean, I'm sure he wants to get home, or he wanted to get home, so he would do anything. But yeah, I, I just don't think he felt like dealing with Pope. I mean, it felt off, but it also felt okay at the same time. Yeah, yeah, I think it kind of was just a lot of the back fighting between Tom and Pope throughout the whole series kind of erupted in that one moment and it started as just a fist fight that escalated quickly and they both drew knives and at that point it was like you know i'm not gonna back down he's not gonna back down so you know this is gonna go and it's gonna get out of hand real quick luckily the skitters you know the common enemy stepped up and maybe sobered them up for a moment you know because they were kind of in that bloodlust or where the blood gets boiling and and you lose all focus on everything else and luckily the skitters stepped in and kind of gave them a sobering moment and they realized oh we shouldn't be fighting each other we got to be fighting them and that was good yeah i agree my perception of it was just pope kind of being a reminder of tom's deadbeat father which he explained was a drunk and stuff like that i think he pegged pope as that kind of person and pope turned out not to be that because i think some of that confusion and that anger kind of came out on pope but i, I don't know <laughs> that's possible Okay, that's what I'm throwing. That's how I'm making sense of it. But again, this wasn't as wacky as Hell Going Evil or Canalian Baby, so I'm good. Right. Okay, there's two final questions for you guys. First one, which side of the fence do you think Dr. Kadar will land on with discovering the secret behind the Vaughn's weapon? Is he going to tell Tom that he's looking into it? Or will he keep the information from him like the vice president asked? Also, do you guys think the cards are still on the table for the president staging the Bieber attack? Did the president die? Was that confirmed? No. No, it was not. No, we didn't then, see anything with it, yeah. Possibly if he's alive. I don't know. This whole episode to me kind of felt like it should have been better because of last week's episode. Yeah. That should, but I, I felt a little underwhelmed by it. So, I mean, it, it's definitely possible, but I have a feeling there's another mole or another something. Yeah. yeah. Not, it's not Tom or Pope. Right. I definitely think the president is still alive. I think that... It was a staged attack. Now, whether they're working with the Asheni or they are just happen to use an attack or something like that to their advantage to get their hands on Cochise and maybe his advanced technology, I think that there's still a possibility that the president and the other United States was behind it. I, 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 I'd like to see it go 
either way, you know, because I think it'll be interesting either way it goes, whether they just happen to be using a, an Asheni attack to get away or if they're actually working with the Asheni and captured Kochis for them. That would be an interesting story as well. So I could see it going either way, but I definitely think that they were behind staging that attack or using it in a way that it allowed them to get their get the the alien coaches and maybe steal the advanced technology. The other thing is I think if the Beamer was the government's or the president's groups, I think how they got it was probably in like a like Area 51 Independence Day crash landing scenario. Yeah, that's yeah. a definite possibility. You know, that they, they got a Beamer years ago, rebuilt it and set it up, and now they're using it for stuff. Mm, that would be interesting too. Yeah. It'd be, yeah. Uh, it would be interesting if Cochise was somehow actually involved in this because, I mean, we kind of find out that the weapon they're using may be overkill and may not be what we thought it was. So it'd be right. interesting if they would want to play that card, too. Uh, the reason Cochise went on the other plane was maybe to get away from Tom and them because he assumed they would die. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm... then there'd essentially be nothing stopping him from taking over Charleston if he wanted to. I mean, there wouldn't be either way, but at least Tom would be out of the way. Yeah. Now, going back to the Dr. Kadar, I don't know where he's going to go because I think that he and the vice president, they have something, some sort of prior relationship went from when John Locke from Lost was the president, you know, and um, Manchester. Yeah, Manchester was the president. So I think they have not like romantic or anything like that, but I think they have an understanding. So I do think he's going to have some loyalty to her, but I think once Tom is back and he's acting as the president again, that Kadar may go to him and try and convince him, not saying he already has, not giving him the information that he gave the vice president in this scene, but saying to him, hey, we need to look at this more. Do you know what it does? Do you have any idea what it's going to do? What are they telling you it's going to do? And can you let me go and examine it? Yeah. You know, and maybe use that as an excuse. And then once he feels like he can trust Tom, I think he will come and bring his suspicions to Tom. Yes, I also see Weaver getting somehow involved in this. And that whole thing where they said that the vice president might be a love interest for Weaver may put him in a complicated situation. Yeah. I think that I think that was kind of one of those TV things where there's oh, yeah. been no evidence of it before, and then all of a sudden there's just a single line, and then somebody says, "Oh, she likes you," and it's like, ah, come on, at least build it up over a couple episodes before you reveal it. I mean, that was that was weak sauce. Well, I didn't like that. I didn't like that particularly, but I could see the storyline going there because yes, it is TV, and they have a tendency to do things like that. Well, I also. I'm still thinking that she's the mole, you know? That is a very strong possibility too, Nico. But I think it's almost too obvious at this point, yep. you know? And so, like, she's the one they're making us think it is, and then it's they're going to pull a complete switcheroo, and it's going to be somebody else. Dr. Kadar could still be on the fence as well. That's a possibility, although we're not entirely sure that Manchester knew him. Right. Because we think that the vice president and Kadar had this understanding and manchester was you know the one that approved it but it didn't seem like he was the one coming down to talk to him or where he would recognize him on site because remember when manchester was killed he recognized them all i have a question how do we know how um porter survived at the end of season one i don't know if we do just throwing that out there right he could be them all too 
That's interesting. I'd be mad if it was, but that's someone that's like under the radar that would be a surprise. Right. Well, they already killed our our other general that we were suspecting. Yeah. Pestilence. So. Yes. Pestilence is dead. Indeed. But I think that covers everything on Falling Skies. Excited to see where things go and how crap hits the fan next week. Hopefully it's not going to leave all these people who hate this Cal storyline upset. But <laughs> I'm looking forward to it because they're going to get out of the way. So there's that to look forward yep. to. Absolutely. All right. Well, now that we've got things wrapped up on Falling Skies, it's time to talk about the other mind bender that always keeps us thinking. And that's the time travel show continuum with an excellent episode that really captured the relationship between partners on a police force as well as what it means to be a hero. So let's talk about the great episode of Continuum, Second Skin. So with this uh, Continuum episode, I've got to ask the question, where is the super suit? Because that's a question we're going to be asking pretty much all season, I think. (laughs) But in this episode, it was cool. Kira's search for another protector suit led her to her old partner, who ended up landing in 1975 after the time travel device was used in the execution chamber. I'm kind of wondering if we're going to have other people pop up throughout the course of the show who landed in the past or will end up appearing in the future. Hmm. So that could be interesting. Well, I mean, remember what I said last week? I said it's always possible that there are time travels, time travelers from other time periods, not just Kira's. Like, even her yes. future, there could be some. Yes, and I have a crazy theory about that we'll get to at the end. Okay. Oh, boy. Oh, man. I'm keeping you in suspense. Yeah, thanks. But seriously, could Sam Jackson just show up on an episode? Could be like, where is the super suit? Why do you need to know? I feel that... Uh, Carlos needs to wear it. Carlos gets the super suit? Yeah. Interesting. He won't have a CMR, but I feel he should get a super suit so he can, you know, do some cool stuff. I feel like Alec needs to, like, adapt it, though. So it doesn't look as weird on him. Like he did with Kira's? Yeah, like, I I don't want him to look like a Star Trek character. I don't know. I don't don't mind the gold. I I really... In fact, I prefer... Not a guy, though? Oh, yeah. I don't mind it being like black or something for the guy, but but for Kira, I actually liked it better when it was gold. Yeah, I, I think it fits her perfectly. I just think a guy, it's a little weird to see it on, but that's just me. Well, you know, yeah, she it all the time. Moving on a little bit, I know Alec; he's just eighteen. But if I knew the world or the future was in danger, I could do something about it. I don't know. I, I don't know if I'd be going after girls, but that's what Alec did. And I'm kind of wondering if something's going to happen to his love interest or she's going to become a part of Liberate or something bad is going to happen that was going to get Alec to stop rebelling against Kira. Because right now with her, he's kind of acting like this high school freshman who's disappointed he got turned down by the hot senior girl. That's how he's handling it. And that's kind of weird. Again, Kira, I think, is being more appropriate with it all. But again, she's an adult and Alec is 18, so there you go. But you also have to realize that Alec does need to live his life in the present in order for the future to happen. Right. So even though he may not be proactive all the time in doing something about it all the time, he can't because if he doesn't live 
as he was supposed to live, as he was intended to live, that future is not probably going to happen. Great, but wasn't he always intended for Kira to be there? I don't know, because I don't know if future Alec grew up with Kira there or not. That's what this show is such a marine fart sometimes. I know. Oh. It's, 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 re- it's really a lot like how Terminator of the Sarah Connor Chronicles handled time travel. Yes. Because after uh, Derek Reese came back to the past, he changed the future. And when his girlfriend from the future came to the past, she experienced a different timeline than he did. Right. Because he changed the future. So I feel like that's what's happening here with Kira and all these other time travelers being there. They're changing the future. So ultimately, I don't know if Kira will be able to go back to her family the way they were. I mean, I think at the end of the series, obviously, she'll find them again and they'll be there. But I don't know if it'll be the same way as it was in the pilot. I think that's the point that her partner was trying to get across to her in the episode with the book and everything. Yeah, Lena. Yes. Where she would say, look, I don't know if it's going to be the same. You need to accept where your life is now. Got to live it from there. Mm-hmm. But I do. I agree with you. I think somehow, I don't know how it's going to be explained, but she's going to get back with the people that she was with before. It might not be exactly what she wants, but it'll be close. I agree with that. And I really liked also as well the cautionary tale that was told in this episode about being a hero. And that was told from the perspective of that man who bought the protector suit got a garage sale. Yeah. And he was wearing it for some, like, I guess, Star Trek-like themed wedding. And I was kind of wondering with this storyline, because it was really good. I'm wondering if this is the beginning of Continuum kind of using a trademark that made Fringe popular, which was the legendary one-off character. Which, for those of you, if you haven't listened to our Fringe sections, when we covered that show, basically the show has a character that just exists in that one episode that has a great story. God, I thought continue to accomplish that here to this episode. Do you agree with that, Michael? I completely agree with that. I, I really do hope this guy comes back. I mean, I, and it, it felt a lot like the scenario on Fringe Season 2 in the uh, pilot where there was that other FBI agent. Yes. And, they, and it seemed like they wanted to bring her in as a main cast member, and they didn't end up doing that. But... I feel that this character is a lot like that character because they had their own really good self-contained story that really tied into the main character, but they didn't have anything else to do after. Yeah. And I, I do hope we see this guy again. I don't know if we will or not. We will or not. Probably not. But it would be really interesting. Well, you have so much going on with so many other characters. I doubt it. Right. Exactly. At this point. It's the same on Fringe. It was the same on Fringe. Right. But the fact that we want to see him back again makes that a job well done. Yep. Also, I can't believe the guy was crazy enough to take out Travis. I know. Like, Travis, he's like the big, scary black guy on live-action television now. Yeah. The guy who had five heads in a duffel bag and brought it to all the gangs. Yes. Ugh. Yeah, I know. Even though it meant the bad guys kind of would have wanted this episode... I was kind of hoping that one of the terrorists would get the suit. Because it'd just be awesome to see one of them fight Kira, get her own suit. But Travis already is a super soldier. But think of Travis with a suit. Then she'd probably lose, though. She'd win. Well, I mean, she would because she's the main character. But she's awesome. The odds are even more against her at that point. So I don't know. I, I mean, I would like to see a super soldier fight between Travis and Kira. I think that would be awesome. Yeah. But... 
I don't know. I feel like Sonya would get in that she and Kira would fight. Now that would be cool. Or they could do Garza, but that, that's kind of dumb. They could, but eh. She's not a major character. And she can be annoying. Yeah, she was kind of annoying in this episode. Actually. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, there's something about her. I mean, I don't know. Well, that's the point of a bad guy. Sometimes they just tick you off. But if they did have that fight scene, I think it would be awesome because the fight scenes on this show, especially at the end of this episode, actually, are just as awesome as Arrow, I think. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is amped up a little bit more because they have, you know, futuristic technology and guns and stuff like that. Yes. But I, I think that, and and you and I have said this before, and I think Wu and I have said this a dozen times, Arrow definitely has the best fighting sequences I have seen on television. Like, hands down, James Banford, their stunt coordinator, it, it, it is incredible. I think if they can get someone like that for Continuum, and if they do more with the suits and stuff like that, and Travis's super soldier powers, I think we could get really good fights on this show, too. Like, I'm not saying the fights we have are bad now, but I'm saying they could get better. But they're better than a lot of other shows out there. Oh, I agree. I continue. I mean, I would say it's like Arrow and then Continuum is pretty close. Yeah, that'd be up there. Um, I think Continuum's problem is, I don't know if they have as big of a budget yet. I think it's going to get there, though. Yeah. I think there's been a big budget difference just from season one to season two. Oh, yeah. It's just like Alphas. They look completely different. Right. But this is going to stay on the air. Yeah, this (laughs) better stay on the air. Well, it will one way or another, because it'll stay on air in Canada, and we'll cover it anyway. Speaking of uh, bad guys that you just want to hate, or I guess in this case, love to hate, man, am I having flashbacks uh, to watching X-Files with Nicholas Lay being right back to the role he plays best. Yes. Krychek. Yeah, Alex Krychek. Oh, my gosh. Because his character at uh, Continuum, KJ Gardner, being obsessed with fighting a protector suit is like the same deal and it's crazy how awesome would it be if uh the guy who played skinner guest starred on the show and ended up killing gardner that'd be nuts <laughs> same way same everything that's just how it goes out well you know he's on this show because of Crycheck. oh yeah oh yeah they're just like oh yeah we need a creepy stalker like agent guy like yeah call up nicholas lay done just just do it again <laughs> i don't care they're like, but they already did that. I don't care. It's awesome. Oh, my gosh. They got the smoking man and Crycheck out here now. I know. <laughs> we, we need David Duchovny on the show. Oh, wouldn't that be something? What in it, though? Like, he's a time travel expert or something? That'd be awesome. Yeah. Yeah. See, it's perfect. And he's like get, Carlos's brother or something, though. Yes. That's get, too get much. Anderson in as, like, a doctor or something. You're good. She's like one of uh, Kira's ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. Or Robert Patrick. Yeah. Bringing him as, as like, a liberate leader. Oh, my gosh. That'd be awesome. That's way too Terminator-like. It doesn't matter. <laughs> he was on X-Files, too. Oh, man. Well, I have a crackpot theory about Agent Gardner. I've got two. One, I'm thinking he might be a freelancer. Okay. The other one I have, and I don't know if this is going to work here. So if I'm wrong and you want to obliterate this thing, go ahead. But I'm wondering if he is Kira's son for the future, who has gone back in time to figure out what's happened to his mother. Oh. Well, that would be very interesting. Um, 
because he just seems to know more than he lets on. But my question is, why would he constantly be hounding her for answers to her like technology and how she knows stuff if he would know? Maybe something like happened to him when he traveled back. Maybe. I, I don't know. That just seems too out of the box. Yeah, but that would be cool. Maybe if they did that in the future with another character that pops up. That, yes, that would be very cool. But I don't, I don't know how I would feel about it being Gardner. I, yeah. I don't like him too much. Okay. But, I mean, the, the idea with her son, that happening would be interesting. Now, if they pulled something like they did with Siler in Season 3 of Heroes... And they had him think he was her son. That would be interesting. Yeah, but I don't. I don't know if I'd want it to be her son. Of course, she thinks the character is her son. They did yeah. it the other way. Yeah, yeah, something like that too. Yeah, I don't know. But what about the freelancer theory? Is that possible? That could be possible. Okay. Would he come though before Kira's time, during Kira's time, or after Kira's time though? That's my question. I'm wondering if he's like the present day freelancer. What, they just have him in every year or something? Yeah. That would be interesting. Like they set them up. Like there's somebody from the future that like goes back in time that sets the different people up as freelancers. That could be interesting too. Um, And and that could be Alec. It's possible. Alec could be a freelancer? The older one. Oh. Well, yeah. Yeah. Be why he sent Kira here. Exactly. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, it's a, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. On this show, anything's possible, so. Yes. With time travel, anything is possible. Yes. And finally, I felt really bad for Kira at the end of this episode. For just how alone she felt. After realizing her partner, who was, was much older by the time Kira found her in 2013, died from most likely turning her... Uh, is it called a CPS? CMR. CMR back on. But I think this tragedy is going to inspire Kira to be much more personable with the people around her. And she may eventually, she's kind of started now, like displaying some humor and kind of telling some jokes and being cool with people. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, again, what I've noticed from the flashbacks to the future. Well, that's a weird way to say that, but anyhow. Back to the future. Yeah. She's much different with her husband and son. You know, you see her smile a lot more. You see her laugh a lot more with them. I mean, that's obvious. But I think we're going to see her be that way with people in the past from here on out. Especially in terms of Carlos and probably Alec once they get their issues worked out. Yeah. And and possibly Alec's girlfriend. Yes, that's true too. What's her name, Emily? I think so. I'll know better as we see her in a couple more episodes. Yeah. I, I think we do see her in a couple more episodes. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. Okay. She, she's in the next, well, I think she's in like the next five. Okay. Big character. Yeah. I th- Yeah. I think she is a big character actually now. And I'm, I'm curious if Kira is going to meet some of Carlos's family in the future as well. Maybe connect with some of them. That'd be interesting. Yes. Cause I know, I know he feels bad for her. And he wants to do something about the situation Carlos does. So I can she see, hey, Kira, him. comes to my family. What? She has to tell him. Oh, that's coming, too. That'll happen. I know it will, but it just it has to happen sooner than later. I want to say season two finale. It's probably going to be he finds that she tells him 
Or he finds out he's going to be ticked off. And then the next season's going to resolve it. It could be a penultimate episode thing, though, too. Yes. Depending on what they have getting season cliffhanger, what they want to make it. But, It'll depend yeah. on when she finds out and he finds out. Yes. For sure. And I could see Carlos maybe eventually evolving into a love interest. That's how it always works when par- with partners who are ga- a guy and a girl. And I'm so sick of that. I just want them to be friends. My gosh. Yeah, I would I would like that if they had like another love interest come in for Kira yeah. and, and do it that way. Like the same thing happened. Or it could Mulder. be Kellogg. That's possible too. Maybe. I mean, but but the, that thing that happened with Mulder and Scully happened with Peter and Olivia. It happens with like every. Well, Mulder got... and Scully was kind of the first or early on that type of thing, so they could get away with it. But the others, yeah. Like I didn't, I didn't even see Peter and Olivia really together until season two when they really started amping it up. Right. I'm like, really? We're going to do this now? But, you know, that it worked out, out well. Nowhere, but it worked out in the end. And also... I don't, I don't know how well it would work on this show. That's all I'm saying. Real quick, with the mentioning of the X-Files multiple times in this discussion, and I have a feeling a lot of X-Files fans are watching Continuum. Uh, Michael is writing reviews on the season 10 comic book. Yes. So check that out at acrosstheairwaves.com. Yes, the first one's now. Yes, it is. And they'll be out once a month when the book comes out. So be looking for that, guys. Next one with the lone gunman should exciting. be good. I'm excited. I am too. And that's not to be confused with the lone ranger coming to theaters this Wednesday. All right. Well, I think that takes care of uh, continuum for this week. Yeah. Got look for more on the show next week. All right. So now that Michael's done hanging with us to talk about some continuum, we are going to go into our rundown section. Sci-Fi's Pulp from Mondays, FX, and USA. Characters welcome. EMT, we know trauma. With a great sitcom that Wu's going to talk to us about, The Goodwin Games. This week's episode is called Happy Hour. It's the sixth episode of the first season, and that's all I got to say about that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I know I say this every week about the show, but this week's episode was probably the best overall episode of the season so far. I really loved everybody's interactions. I loved they brought Lucinda, the the minister, back to to interact with Henry. One of the things I really like about this relationship between Henry and Lucinda is that you can tell they still love each other. You can tell that there's a connection between the two characters. But ultimately, like Robin and Ted on How I Met Your Mother, there's something about them that just doesn't work. And who knows if they're going to be able to look past their past and get over their issues or their emotional frailties about their relationship and form a new one. Or they could not. I could see it both happening. I could see either or happening and really making sense. Scott Foley, I thought, did a very, very, very good comedic performance and dramatic performance. Very Ted Mosby-like with his speech with Lucinda near the end of the episode. Speaking of How I Met Your Mother, when 
when Lucinda and Henry passed a stoop that is the stoop of the apartment in How I Met Your Mother and the, the same location they used for the McLaren's bar in How, How I Met Your Mother. Um, really, look, before I forget, my favorite thing in this week's episode was the flashback to Christmas time when Henry tells everyone he broke up with Lucinda and, and Chloe basically has Jimmy hold back Henry's arms so she could just wail on him for breaking up with Lucinda. I think that's my favorite thing in the episode. Also, you use that with the intercutting of present time when Chloe goes, She still is the love of your life. Love that thing from Becky Newton. Speaking of Becky Newton, once again, standout performance of the episode, I thought. She really has this great ability on this series in particular to be sweet, to be charming, but the dialogue is still very, very shallow and very disconcerting and very stuck up, but the way she performs it, you still can't be mad at her. You still can't hold a grudge against her because she's just so cute and just so sweet in her delivery of it. I love that they brought the guy Ivan Owens back, who we saw a little bit in the Chloe and Math episode. I think it was episode, it was 104 when she goes back to school. I love the whole thing with the narc thing, the whole joke with the narc at the beginning of the episode. I really think Ivan Owens, I really think that guy is a great performer. I love his chemistry with Becky Newton. But before I, but before I forget, because I know I'm running a little bit late here, I loved the reveal of Jimmy and April being a couple. Loved Jimmy's um, Johnny Cash thing near near the beginning of the episode. Loved the actress who plays April. April Chow's reaction when she see, she sees and hears Jimmy's song, I I I just love I just love the just innocence yet moronic tendencies of Jimmy Goodwin. Also loved it when he and Henry when Jimmy was holding Henry's arms back, they were doing kind of a penguin walk near the bar. Loved loved everything about this episode, guys. Five out of five. I really can't say anything about it. I know I say this every week, and it's going to be a continuing thing. Please support the show. Apparently next week will be episode seven. Hopefully Fox has picked up more episodes, but it is if it has not, you know what? This was a good run. This was a good run for for a, a series, especially a mid-season replacement. Um, please download this episode on iTunes. Please or please download this series off of iTunes. Please download it from Amazon. Please watch it on Hulu. Please TiVo it. Watch it on demand. Watch it anywhere you can watch it. Please support the show. It's a really good show, and I hope it gets more episodes because Carter Bays, Craig Thomas, Chris Harris, they have a really, they have a real winner here again. I'll see you guys next week for episode seven. Let's take it back to Nico and Dan. Bye, guys. Thanks, Wu. Let's move on to Defiance with this week's episode, The Bride Wore Black. The 
wedding of Alec and Christy is threatened when Rafe realizes what Daytech is up to. Meanwhile, a businessman's corpse is discovered in the walls of Needwant. Katami sets out to find the killer. This week's episode of Defiance finally delivered on the big Macaulay Tar family wedding that the series has been building towards all season. Despite the happy occasion, this was quite possibly the darkest episode of Defiance to date. A murder mystery was the catalyst for a great deal of character conflicts, sinister flashbacks, and even more murders as a result. Dark perhaps, but this was one of the strongest episodes yet. While there was never a shortage of character building material for the big players early on, i.e. Nolan, Arissa, Daytac, etc., most of the supporting cast seemed to be left on the sidelines. Even Mayor Rosewater rarely seemed to receive the sort of deep focus needed to turn her into a fully realized character with wants and needs and flaws that we've been saying has been getting better in the last couple episodes. The flashback format in this episode went a long way towards addressing those problems for many of those side characters. Tommy benefited from this in the episode more than anyone. We learned about his past as an illiterate card hustler and the one act of kindness that set him on a better path. I like that Tommy's loyalty to the late Hunter Bell served as a driving force throughout the investigation, and that said loyalty set him apart from the rest of the cast of characters, who all seemed to have reasons to despise and even kill Hunter Bell. The flashbacks repeatedly showed these reasons why various characters would have had a reason to kill Bell. It was nice to see one character who had reason to revere him. The flashbacks were a benefit for several other characters as well. We learned about more past drama between the Rosewater sisters and that Kenya was a victim of an abusive marriage. For a while, it seemed as if Amanda would be revealed as the killer, or at least that we were meant to question whether she could have been involved. We also saw the origins of the Rafe McCauley Daytac Tar rivalry. As it turns out, both men started out on friendly terms, motivated by a mutual dislike and distrust of Bell. As much animosity that exists between the two in the present, one can only assume that Daytac sometimes overcompensates because Rafe is one of the few people that knew him before his rise to power and glory within Defiance. Ultimately, the episode revealed that Nikki Reardon was the culprit. No real surprise there considering her track record on the series so far, but there were plenty of surprises that accompanied this revelation. This episode delved heavily into last week's cliffhanger that Reardon and Doc Yule were once co-conspirators, a relationship that included covering up Bell's murder. Not only that, but Reardon is actually an Indogene in human disguise. As if those twists weren't enough, the episode climaxed with Reardon being outsmarted and killed by Doc Yule. I certainly wasn't expecting that turn of events. As much as I'll be sorry to see Reardon gone, the twist was a major boost for the Doc Yule character, who has really only started to come into her own in the last couple weeks, and seems like yeah. she has a much more interesting backstory than Reardon had, and could be much better and more intriguing character as well. I'm interested in this story and where it goes. In any case, with a hefty dose of darkness and some strong character growth on various fronts, this episode really showcased Defiance's storytelling potential and is why I think it was one of the best episodes so far. So Dan, what were your thoughts on this episode? This is one of those episodes where they really began cleaning up the mess Mm -hmm. and bringing up the characters that could be interesting getting them more to the forefront. I think Tommy may become one of those breakout characters of the show where, you know, he's kind of in the background, which he's been for most of the season. But now Mm -hmm. I think with this episode, we got a really big breakout for him. Right. So I'm saying see a lot more with him. What's going on? 
the changes in the mayor's personality, which we commented about, I n- knew she was going to get killed at some point. Yeah. It just was too off. And again, I said the EarthGov situation was much more interesting to me. And as you said, the Doc Ewell thing is much more interesting. So it made sense that they killed her off. I'm very glad that they took care of that. That was fixing some of the problems. So that's going to be interesting. Also, I really like the backstory with Kenya. It explained her character so much more. What's going on with her and that whole weird relationship she has with Daytek's wife. Yep. So that's going to be interesting. And, you know, we'll see how that plays out there. It it explains so much. That was a great touch. That was really the good thing about this episode. Because Defiance is now giving us little nuggets of these characters' past. That's pique our interest or keep us going. So I really like that. I think we'll see more of the Rafe Bacali Daytac rivalry and how it got there in the next couple episodes. Can I really like the Rafe Bacali character? I just yeah. really have a lot of respect for the guy with how he handled the whole wedding situation. Yeah, absolutely. He's a very honorable man, and this was just straight up, like, awesome how he handled all that. You know, the guy cares about his daughter, and that's... I mean, he's done a lot of bad things, and we know that, because that's been told to us, but I really I have to give him props for how he handled this. And it's, you know, it, he's a very interesting character on this show. That's getting me to tune in every week. Yeah. And the, and the twist with him there, I knew right when the episode started that she killed the guy. I mean, it was pretty obvious, but then the fact that she wasn't human... That was an interesting twist that I did not see coming. Absolutely. So they did predictable stuff, but then they surprised us with that. So really, this show's really going the right direction. Really cleaned itself up. And if it has a solid finale, it's got a place on Sci-Fi Channel, I think, for a while. I really believe that. Yeah, I think so. So uh, great episode. Great work. Glad to see that these writers are improving. God, they've got great people behind this show. I mean, this was written by two Smallville alum writers. And, you know, Smallville was a rock-solid show. So um, if they could bet that group of those writers can stick together and keep going. It's great stuff. And they have people involved with Arrow behind it as well. So I see them using some of their flashback techniques to give Defiance a little bit of a boost. So that's cool to see too. So keep running strong, you guys. It's good stuff. And with that, we're going to move on to talking about Bird Notice now with the episode Brother in Arms. My name is Michael Weston. I used to be a spy. Burke once again recruits Michael and his team to break Sonia out of a Russian prison-based Havana. But Michael's past with the Russians give them a hard time. Four episodes of Bird Notice in a row with barely any filler. I've got to say that I'm impressed. Could have the sense that the writers really know where they are going with this final season. Anyway, with this episode, it seemed like Michael had lost his marbles when it came to getting the CIA off his back because he was willing to almost kill a little girl just to maintain his undercover status within Burke, the terrorist leader played by Adrian Pazdar's organization. Got to make this episode even darker... Michael drags Jesse, gets Sam with him down to Cuba, where he subjects himself to waterboarding, got a few other horrors, got the hands of his arch enemies from Mother Russia for the purpose of figuring out the end game set in motion by Burke's employers. At the same time in Miami, Fiona, who keeps thinking she's put Michael behind her, gets dragged right back into his mess, because she showed signs of going dark, just like Michael with her willingness to kidnap, can completely destroy the life of an innocent Russian consulate worker. Thankfully, before Fiona went too far off the reservation, Michael's mob will also serve, because Fiona's accomplice on this mission, knock some common sense into Michael's trigger-happy ex-girlfriend, convincing her to take the information they needed from the consulate worker without completely ruining his life. So with Michael's mob preventing Fiona from doing something destructive, 
to vent out her frustrations, cover the crap situation the CIA has put her in. I'm thinking Fiona will use this experience, kind of piece of advice she was given, to bring back the likable guy slash family man Michael became in the early stages of season five. However, the biggest mystery that is perplexing this show, kind of way that's making me excited to watch every week, because the story behind the Burke character. Guys, and whose side is he on? Got Adrian Pazdar? Because playing this question brilliantly. Because last week, with Michael's new CIA handler, Strong, willing to send him to the Wolves, I was almost certain that Burke was going to flip to be an ally by the end of the season. But then my theory seemed to be completely proven wrong. Because this episode started with Burke acting as the typical bird notice villain, ready to kill Michael's team at a moment's notice if they didn't get the job done. Although once Michael got into position, where it seemed like he was completely done for, Burke totally surprised me by giving Sam this profound John Wayne military hero-like speech about never leaving a man behind, and then sacrificing himself for Michael telling him that Sonia, the girl they broke out of the Russian prison, gets the key to everything. And what the heck does that mean? Well, let's take a look at the clues that were given to us in the last five minutes of the episode. First off, based on Burke sacrificing himself for Michael, I'm going to continue going with my theory from last week that Burke was a member of a coalition of bird spies, just like Michael, who are dedicated to exposing some huge conspiracy within the CIA. On that note, I think it's safe to say that Sonia, played by one of Nico's favorite TV actresses, Colonna Tall, is a super spy who has the evidence that will blow the whistle on the CIA conspiracy, which burned Michael, along with a number of spies all over the world that make up the organization Burke is a part of. And the reason why I'm calling Sonia a super spy is based on just how easily she took Jesse down at the end of the episode, since Jesse's a trained spy as well, making me believe that um, the CIA conspiracy will be exposed by the knowledge that performance-enhancing drugs were used on Sonia to make her more effective in the field. Guys, in like a born identity kind of thing. Again, I'm not totally sold on this theory because it seems a little too sci-fi for burn notice, but I could for sure see Sonia as someone who will complicate Michael's ambition to get back with Fiona before she ultimately becomes a love interest for Jesse. Since I think the fact that she beat him up so easily will be a flirtatious running joke throughout the rest of the season. Nonetheless, it's still early in the season, meaning that this final season is still open towards going pretty much anywhere. But for right now, we are getting a lot of questions that I want answered, making me excited to tune in every week. And all of you listeners out there should be tuning in as well, because this final season is burn notice and the spy genre at its best. All right, thanks, Dan, for your great review of Burn Notice this week. Now we're going to jump into a pilot of an amazing summer series that has the highest rated premiere in eight years of any summer show. That was just, it blew people away. And that is Stephen King's based show, Under the Dome, with the first episode pilot. The 
townspeople of Chester's Mill discover themselves unexpectedly cut off from the outside world when an invisible dome springs up around the town, sealing them in with limited food, water, air, and medicine. A quick note, I haven't read the book, so there will be no book comparisons in my coverage of this series this summer. CBS is addressing both issues of the length of a typical 22-episode season and the annual summer ratings drought with its new series, Under the Dome, a 13-episode dramatic adaptation of Stephen King's novel of the same name that the network hopes will unslump its summer and help it nab some of that cool cable crowd. CBS's Under the Dome was clearly a hit with its Monday night premiere, drawing 13.5 million total people, according to Nielsen, to the troubled little Chester's Mill. Under the Dome stands as broadcast TV's most watched summer premiere since since NBC's The Singing Bee in 2007 with 13.3 million, and CBS's most watched summer launch since Big Brother in 2000 with 22.3 million. But enough with how good the numbers were, let's jump into why it did this well. In case you didn't figure out the complex plot from the pilot, a giant friggin' impenetrable force dome sprung up over the small town of Chester's Mill, trapping its citizens inside like ants in an ant farm or terrarium. If you're asking yourself, what is the dome, what is it made of, and where did it come from? Congratulations, you're asking the right questions. But we've posed similar queries before. What is the event? What the hell are those flash forwards? Why are the old prisoners from 1950s Alcatraz showing up and killing people in present day San Francisco? But something tells me that what's the dome will give us a better answer, and there are two reasons for that. First, and probably most importantly, a tighter 13-episode season will mean less filler and fewer distractions from the questions at hand. A lot of times, mystery-based sci-fi series will know their mystery and not much else, resulting in a scrambled mess of clues, flimsy characters, and poor choices. Second, two words, Stephen King. I mean, the guy is genius level at this storytelling thing, right? So it's gonna be good. However, CBS is pondering stretching out under the dome for multiple seasons, which means it may ultimately face the same troubles as the Big Question series that came before it. When do you answer the question? Are the side stories good enough to keep the series going? Do we care about anything other than the dome? Lately, TV networks have been showing a greater interest in limited-run events, or miniseries as regular folks call them, and Under the Dome probably should be one of them. Show us a dome and the ensuing freakout, tell us some stories, tell us where the dome came from, and thank you, good night. Of course, the reality of the situation is that we don't know if Under the Dome will be able to sustain a lengthy run until we've seen a few more episodes, but history has taught us to be wary, very wary. Regardless, I'm hoping this series can be the exception. I'm not going to call Under the Dome the best pilot I've ever seen or anything like that, but I sure did enjoy watching the premiere. The dome execution was flawless and all that came with it. Planes crashing into an invisible dome, birds snapping their hollow bone necks by slamming into an invisible dome were all very cool, and that poor cow getting bisected by an invisible dome was one of the coolest things I've seen on TV in a long while. And from the pilot, it appears the show knows exactly what it wants to be, a forward-moving, no-nonsense drama about a town imprisoned by a magical barrier. So far, so good. I'm confident the viewers will get sucked into the lives of the people under the dome just as much as they'll get sucked into the mystery of the dome itself. The producers also plan to approach under the dome the same way The Walking Dead handled its comic book source material by veering off the path with new mysteries that weren't in the book while still staying somewhat close to the source material. And they certainly didn't waste any time with characters in the pilot. Even though it checked in with plenty of people, every member of the ensemble cast was well served in that first hour, and the pilot did a good job of clearly laying them out as Stephen King character archetypes. Barbie, played by Mike Vogel, is the mysterious outsider. Julia, played by Rochelle Lafarve, is the inquisitive journalist. Big Jim, played by Dean Norris, 
is the shady politician and part-time car salesman. Duke, played by Jeff Faye, is the well-meaning police chief, and so on and so forth. The episode didn't give us much to discuss about them for now, but they all have dark secrets, and that's what's going to make this show work if it ultimately does succeed. One thing that surprised me about the pilot was how quickly it rushed into non-dome-related stories, however, in the second half. The non-dome-related stories in a show about a dome are probably what are going to make it last beyond ultimately finding out what the dome is and why it appeared, but still I thought there was a lot of non-dome story movement for the pilot. Angie, played by Britt Robertson, an actress I really have enjoyed in everything I've seen her so far, got kidnapped by Junior, played by newcomer Alexander Koch, and shoved into a fallout shouter. Big Jim and Duke bickered over the mass shipments of propane, which actually probably has something to do with the dome mystery, but at the moment we're not sure if maybe Big Jim knew the dome was coming and was gas hoarding or preparing for the doomsday event or somehow knew it was coming. Barbie murdered Julia's husband. Okay, that's pretty interesting, especially since those two are totally going to be love interests, right? But still, some of these character things could have waited and the focus of the pilot should have been maybe more dome, dome, and more dome. Maybe it's just me, but I think the power of the dome's initial impact could have been extended a bit longer and the essentials of the horrific situation fleshed out in more detail while Junior's psychopathic obsession with Angie was put off for another episode later in the season. Aside from that minor quibble, which will probably be a thing of the past once episode 2 airs, I think we're looking at a pretty decent series here. Under the Dome appears to have a really solid foundation, not to mention a sense of direction, a rarity in these big question series. I may think the side stories of the pilot were ill-timed or introduced too early, but that doesn't mean they aren't interesting and won't pay big dividends once our Dome infatuation wears off and we realize that the big questions won't be answered anytime soon. This is what Stephen King does best, keeping his audience just eager enough to start the next chapter, No Questions Asked. This is a series you should be watching and a premiere I thoroughly enjoyed. And it's going to be a show that I'm going to add to the rundown for the summer because I liked it that much. Nice. This next show is, was really a good first episode and I enjoy the show, but it's not something that I necessarily want to review every week. But I did want to review the first episode just to give you guys an idea of what the show's about. And that's the new show Crossing Lines with the first and second episode entitled Pilot. Disabled recluse and former NYPD detective Carl Hickman gets an offer from his friend, Detective Major Louis Daniel, to join his team in tracking down an international serial killer. To the premiere of this crime drama series in which global lawbreakers are brought to justice with the help of international criminal court. In the new NBC drama Crossing Lines, character actor William Fitchner plays Carl Hickman, a legendary former NYPD detective whose career ended with a disability when he was shot in the hand while pursuing a suspect. He now lives in a trailer behind an Amsterdam carnival and has a job picking up trash with a stick, which seems about all he's capable of, both physically and emotionally, until French colleague Louis Daniel, played by Mark Lavoine, recruits him for a new extra-fancy international crime task force. This group consists of cops from France, England, Ireland, Germany, and other countries that will investigate crimes that transcend any one jurisdiction, with each member providing both a different cultural perspective and their own unique skill set. The Irish cops specialize in weapons and tactics, the German one has a lot of cool gadgets, and so on. And all they need to be a complete team is Carl and his gift for criminal profiling. 
It's like we're the Justice League or something, Carl jokes, prompting one of the new foreign partners to look up the reference on his phone before they all go off to chase a serial killer who throws women in the trunk of his car before chasing them through parks and stabbing them repeatedly. It is, in other words, Criminal Minds Europe, with the usual stories of creepy men and the women they terrorize being punctuated by continental scenery and moments where one cop's local idiom has to be translated to the others. And since I love Criminal Minds, it is just the kind of show I enjoy. A classic police procedural with enough of a new twist to make it interesting and the actors and characters give it enough life to keep it interesting. Fitchner, who did a long stint on Prison Break and has headlined short-lived dramas like Invasion and MDs, does some solid work as the damaged American, and the ensemble as a whole is strong, including Donald Sutherland as a lawyer at The Hague, who helps authorize the group's existence, and Tom Waschlicke, who played Jochen Hager from Game of Thrones, as the German tech expert. The production values from shooting in Europe are also excellent, and other than some shots of the Eiffel Tower to establish location, the show doesn't suffer from the need to put those major landmarks in the back of every shot when the cops go from country to country. There's potentially a very interesting show here about cops from different cultures with different methods of policing learning to work together. Let's hope that they can keep that up and it does not resort to the same old, same old. So far, so good. Yeah, and so, as I said in the beginning, Crossing Lines is a good show, just not something I think we're going to cover every week. It's a pretty standard police procedural. It just brings detectives and police from all the different agencies in Europe together in sort of like an Interpol-like thing, except for it's based out of The Hague and the International Criminal Court. It's actually an interesting thing. As I mentioned, Donald Sutherland's in it. Really, you should check this out and, you know, see if you like it. I thought it was a lot of fun. My family thought it was good. I just don't want to review it every week. So with that, I think it's about time to jump into the closing. Yeah, and with that, Nico, why don't you tell everybody what we're doing next week? It's more the same, but we're mixing it up a little bit. We've got some new shows to add to the schedule to talk about now. Yeah, on next week's episode, the TV schedule continues with what will be most of our summer schedule as we'll continue our coverage of Falling Skies, Continuum, and Warehouse 13. We'll also round things out with an Airwaves Rundown section featuring our brief thoughts on The Goodwin Games, Defiance, Under the Dome, and the final season of Burn Notice, and maybe even more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on the website at acrosstheairwaves.com and you can see that review I talked about earlier of Michael's review of the X-Files comic book as well. Yep, got some great stuff there. Got also, until our next ATA episode comes out, you could check out some of our spinoff podcasts. We've got It's Tangent Time, which is a podcast hosted by Michael and Wu. They basically just talk about a variety of topics within the entertainment industry. Just different things around entertainment that basically Michael and Wu go out to share their opinions on so for a good time with those guys and to hear what they think of what's going on around the entertainment industry check out it's tangent time also we've got across the airwaves is dc nation podcast which basically covers all of the imaginative content that dc comics provides for its fans including comic books mainly the marvel season 11 comic books the animated films that they release their animated tv shows and basically movies okay coming soon to the dc nation podcast will be reviews on the upcoming batman series beware the batman which looks pretty cool So keep an eye out for our coverage of that coming in July. Also, last but not least, we have ATA Log Monitors, the Arrow podcast, which covers episodes of hit CW TV series, Arrow in greater detail. And they will have an episode, actually two episodes, coming up this summer. One will cover Comic-Con, as Arrow will have a panel at Comic-Con, which Michael and Wu are going to discuss. And they're also going to do an episode covering the DVD and Blu-ray release of Arrow Season 1. So check that out. They have two podcasts coming out this summer, and then they will be, once again, releasing podcasts pretty much weekly once Arrow begins 
Legends re-airing in the fall with Season 2. Also, if you'd like, you can contact us by visiting our newly updated and improved website at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. You can also click the button on our page to like our Facebook. Through doing that, you will stay updated on our podcast episode releases and also be able to follow all the entertainment news that Nico reports on during our Across the Airwaves episodes. For that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airwaves. There's no the on there. It's just across the airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you can leave us a voicemail. Okay, what number can you call to do that, Nico? 773-809-3363. And with that, you can give us your thoughts or feedback on any of the shows we cover or our podcast in general. So uh, if you're interested, do that. Also, if you'd like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features previews and promos for all sorts of across the airwaves events, as well as upcoming movies. Also available on our YouTube channel is a playlist of the DC Nation shorts that is shown during the Saturday morning programming block on Cartoon Network. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast to listen to all the ways you could contact us, you could download our podcast box app, which will let you contact our podcast and listen to our podcast episodes on your iPad and iPhone. And if you're on an Android or Windows device, you could download our Android app from the Amazon Marketplace to get that same content. And again, that's our podcast episode and ways you could contact us. So, once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Lou Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustek. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airways. See you, everyone. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. Go Blackhawks. now return to our regularly scheduled program.